We the people. We the people. We the people of the United States. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. Do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. In the summer of 1787, 55 men gathered in Philadelphia to consider how to make the government of the United States more perfect. Over the course of five months, they argued, debated, considered, and rejected ideas, notions, and various systems. In the end, they created the Constitution of the United States, a document predicated on the idea that men can rule themselves. By law, this is Constitution Thursday, a time when we look at the history, ideas, arguments, and interpretations of the Constitution, from its original creation to today, and how it affects our lives now. In the mid 1500s. There came a story that is actually based on a real man. Man's name was Johann Faust, and he really, as far as we know, actually did exist. In a time when people were accused every day of being witches and the like, Mr. Faust had the unfortunate fortune. Of somehow or another managing to beat all the odds, beat all the systems, beat all the the controls that were put in place in medieval Europe, in medieval Germany, and somehow managed to become very successful. And there were those who believed, and we know this because it is noted in many of the histories of that era, that Mr. Faust, who really did exist. Must have reached some agreement with the devil himself. As Gautier would later call him Mephistopheles, Old Scratch, and various other names by which he would be known throughout history. The story has long stayed with us because it is a classic tale of selling yourself, selling your soul to the devil to gain riches. Or success, it has been repeated in history and repeated in literature multiple times. Three of my particular favorites are Washington Irving's story, "The Devil and Tom Walker," in which Tom Walker makes his deal with Old Scratch and becomes extraordinarily wealthy, and then has a change of heart when he realizes that his time is drawing near. Mr. Walker makes all kinds of attempts to religious himself up. He's never seen without a Bible, so forth and so on. 
But in the end, the devil gets his due. And Tom Walker and all his wealth and all his riches couldn't buy off Satan, Mephistopheles, old scratch, and he is sent packing off to his doom. I guess maybe my number two favorite version of it is Stephen Vincent Benet's version, The Devil and Daniel Webster. This was actually made into a pretty pretty entertaining movie back in the 40s and 50s. And it's the story of a man who, Jacob, Jacobin, who discovers some wealth and manages to come to a deal with Old Scratch himself and becomes fabulously wealthy, gets everything he wants in life. But like Tom Walker, he too has a change of heart and he wants to return. <laughs> he, he wants to keep his soul. He wants to keep his life. But he has an ace up the sleeve, which is that he happens to live in a town where Daniel Webster, the great orator, senator, and perhaps maybe should have been president of the United States, is, is passing through. And as a barrister of the top degree, Daniel Webster can't resist the opportunity to argue his case against Old Scratch. And in a courtroom drama that rivals Perry Mason, Daniel Webster faces down Mephistopheles, faces down the devil, faces down his jury of of 12 really bad guys. And in the end, in kind of an odd twist, he wins. And the man is let go free as Daniel Webster bests the devil. This was then turned into the 60s, and as, as you might imagine, to a a film called Bedazzled, which starred Raquel Welch and Dudley Moore. Um, I don't recommend this film. I really don't. It, for its time, it was, it was fantastic. It was called The Thinking Man's Comedy of the Year. And if you understand 60s British culture, it's a pretty good movie. If you don't, if you think that British... Austin Powers is making fun of this culture. <laughs> He's not living in that culture. Um, but if you understand the real culture that day, this is a pretty funny movie, but it's it's very dated. It was remade back in the 90s uh, with Brendan Fraser and and uh, Elizabeth Hurley as, the, as Mephistopheles, as the devil. And for my money, that's a really good movie. <laughs> it's actually really good. And it just... It will both entertain you and it'll tell you similarly the story. But much like much like the devil and Daniel Webster, unlike the original story, Gautier and, and uh, Washington Irving, in the end of these two movies, the young man gets what he wants because, you know, nobody wants a bad ending to a movie, right? Everybody wants a happy ending to a movie. And so that's what they get. You get the girl that they really wanted, not the one that they thought they wanted. They get all the wealth and riches, and they get their life back, and everything's fine, and everybody's happy. The moral of the story, of course, as Gautier told it in, in his book Faust, and as was turned into operas and so forth and so on, and the, and the original myth, is very simply that if you what, did, what good does it do a man to gain the entire world but lose his soul? And that is the general acceptance of what the story of Faust is really all about. Faustian bargains has entered into our lexicon as making a deal with the devil to get something we want by compromising our positions, by compromising our souls. 
But what if the moral of Gautier's story and his his original Faust really isn't about the dangers of wealth, human desires? What if it's something deeper than that? What if it's really about giving up on what really matters most to your soul? That's the real question I think that Faust raises. And and unfortunately, the subsequent stories, Devil and Daniel Webster, as much as I love it, Bedazzled as much as I love it, and others along that same route, they almost always end with the the person who made the Faustian bargain getting out of it. But that's not how it works. That's not really what life becomes, is it? And that's part of the problem as we turn back into our uh, discussion of the election of 1876. When we left you a couple of weeks ago, the election had happened. Counts, tabulations were beginning. And all across the country, there was great fanfare and great eagerness with which they looked forward to getting the results. And as the results trickled in, it became clear that this was going to be a very close race. And in fact, as I told you, Tilden, Samuel Tilden, the Democrat, actually wins the popular vote. He's the he will be, and I'm going to be a spoiler alert here, he will be the only man, the only presidential candidate that will win the popular vote, not get the White House, and actually get a majority of the votes. Not a plurality, but a majority. What do I mean by that? Well, Hillary Clinton did not get more than 50% of the votes. George Bush did not get 50, or Al Gore did not get 50% of the votes. They got... Less than the majority, but yeah, okay, they got more popular votes, but not as electoral votes. This is this is the only time in history this will happen, at least you know so far. Obviously, <laughs> who knows what will happen in the next election? But as they begin to count the votes, things get a little tense and things get a little argumentative, and, and it becomes obvious that in four states—Florida, South Carolina, Louisiana. Are, are pretty obvious. This is where voter suppression is going crazy. This is where people are being killed, as we've talked about. This is where people are being uh, given ballots. They say they want to vote one party, and so they're given a ballot for the other party, and many people are illiterate. They use symbols on the ballots. And in fact, in Florida, the Democrat Party prints their ballots, prints their tickets, because that's how you voted back in those days, um, prints their tickets with the picture of Abraham Lincoln on it convincing people that those are Republican ballots. There's all kinds of this stuff going on. But it's in Oregon that, that an interesting thing happens. The governor up there is a Democrat order, a Democrat governor by the name of Lafayette Grover, which is a great name. Lafayette Grover has, uh, he has the seat of power in the state of Oregon, and he is a stickler. I gotta admit, I, I feel kind of a, a, an odd kinship with him because He's a guy who likes the letter of the law. And the letter of the law says very simply, each state shall appoint in such manner as the legislation thereof may direct a number of electors equal to the whole number of senators and representatives to which the state may be entitled in Congress. And then this, but no senator or representative or person holding office and office of trust or profit under the United States shall be appointed an elector. It's in Article 2, Section 1. It's still there. And so this is why you don't see uh, senators and representatives as, as electors. And so when the votes are tabulated, and remember, 
technically, during a presidential election, you are, in fact, voting for an elector, not the president. You're voting for someone who says that they will go to the Electoral College and vote for your, for your candidate. Technically, that's what you're doing. So, when the votes are tabulated, and Oregon has three electors, first and second guy go to, easily go to Hayes. The third guy also goes to Hayes, by quite a wide margin. It's, it's really not even close. The problem is, he is a postmaster in the state of Oregon. And Lafayette Grover believes that that is technically a person holding an office of trust or profit under the United States. It's United States postmaster. And so he invalidates the election of Joe Watts, Joseph Watts, and replaces him with the fourth place finisher, who by a wide margin is in fourth place, but of course is a Democrat who pledged to vote for Tilden. The, the, the state of Oregon is outraged by this. The people of the state of Oregon, uh, some of the newspaper articles I read, uh, you can kind of see there, and uh, just infuriated by the fact that the governor was willfully supplanting the will of the people of the state of Oregon, which was clearly expressed. Again, it wasn't even close. Okay? The fourth place furniture was not even, not even in the same time zone. And yet the governor appointed him on the basis of, well, the, uh, the other elector holds office of trust and profit under the United States. And so I feel like I'm doing the right thing. And to his credit, he stuck by his guns. Now, the newspapers there pilloried him. There was a whole lot of, of uh, discussion. There was a whole lot of issues. There was a whole, I mean, it was just a mess. But at the end of the day, he stuck with his thing. So Oregon is now actually technically split. They're, they're actually technically split. Two for Hayes, one for Tilden. And... There doesn't seem to be any, you know, <laughs> impasse here. This is a constitutional argument of Article 2, Section 1. Of all the disputed votes, and there are 20 now, the, this is the only one that really has a constitutional basis for the argument. I mean, I, I don't know what argument I would make to counter the governor's argument. Now, his appointment of the number four guy I have a problem with and again, the newspapers up there were very clear about it. You can't just supplant the will of the people. You can't just throw out this and, and replace it with what you want because of that. But, but he did. And so that's where, that's where the real trouble begins, isn't it? Down in Florida, Louisiana, and South Carolina, the issues are much different. They are voter suppression. There's threats. There's peaceful protests that intensified. People were getting shot. People are getting... And, and of course, depending on who you are, remember, all three of these states have Republican governors, but those Republican governors are not popularly supported. They were installed under the Reconstruction government, and with, they come with a military occupation. Florida goes pretty quickly. They, they kind of settle things down there. Louisiana, not quite as quick, but South Carolina, man, the governor there is basically under siege in the governor's mansion surrounded by Wade Hampton and his redeemers and red shirts, and there is screaming and yelling. And the question then becomes, who counts the votes? I mean, <laughs> when they send the electoral votes to the, to the Senate, like they're supposed to, there's a question of who counts the votes, because depending on, and I love the word construction, depending on which construction you use of the way the Constitution says this, it's un, it was at the time 
extremely unclear as to specifically how the votes would be counted. It says the Senate, but there's some open ground there. And depending, again, on how you construct it, it might have been the House. Remember, the House at this time is controlled by the Democrats, Tilden and his party. The Senate by Hayes and the Republicans. And the Supreme Court by, by now is, is basically, uh, as I recall, it's seven, one, and one. Seven, Republic, seven Republicans, one Democrat, one independent. Don't quote me on that part, but there is one independent. I know that, and that's important to our story. And it really becomes who counts these votes, because whoever counts these votes, as Stalin said, it's not enough for the people to know there was election. People who cast the votes decide nothing. The people who count the votes, they decide everything. And as they're standing there in the, in the uh, Senate chamber, they can't, the arguments are just too intense in the Congress of the United States, the argument, let alone out in the countryside where people are screaming and yelling and shooting at each other over this. But, you know, we've never been more divided. Into this whole mess steps someone who should be more famous than he is, but for some reason uh, is not. A guy by the name of Roscoe Conklin. Roscoe Conklin is a congressman. He is a what is known as a radical Republican. He's one of the leaders of the radical Republicans in, in, in Congress. And he is unbelievably wildly popular in the United States at the time. In fact, many people are named after him. There are kids of that era running around with the name Roscoe and Conklin because their parents just loved this guy. He was... He was a fitness junkie long before there was fitness junkie thingies in the United States. He was a guy who was known to work out every day, to run. He, was, he ate healthy, and he was a firebrand of the so-called radical Republicans, which, of course, were very, very strongly abolitionists. They believed very firmly in the freeing of the slaves and the equality of black citizens post-war. Mr. Conklin, in fact, will go so far as to at one point propose legislation that the former slaves, the freedmen, actually be treated under the law better than former Confederates. He was, he hated the Confederacy. He hated those people. And he was very adamant about this. And he was very adamant about the fact that Hayes had to win because, like most people, he believed that Tilden was going to allow the freedman, to be deprived of his constitutional rights. Roscoe Conklin, as a leader in Congress, looks at what's going on, and he decides that, look, we got to do something here. This, this is up to Congress. This is up to us. And along with some other leaders, they form a, a group that comes up with some legislation. Now, this is kind of the, there's a misnomer here called the Compromise of 1877. There really isn't such a thing. And if there were, there were actually two of them. But in the back rooms of Congress, Conklin and the others come up with a way that Congress can figure this out. They, 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 they form a compromise, but this compromise requires legislation in order to, to make it happen. The compromise is going to put together a group of men. Sorry, ladies, there wasn't, was no 19th Amendment yet. Um, and those, that, comp, that commission will then decide what they will do about these disputed, these 20 disputed votes, the 19 in the three southern states and the one in Oregon. 
there's one last agreement that they agree to as they make the legislation, they draft the bill. They actually write a bill that goes through Congress and eventually becomes law to establish this election commission. And that agreement is that it's a gentleman's agreement that they will actually all abide by this compromise, by this law. Because there's a real feeling that the Democrats are not going to. There is a real feeling that the Bourbon Democrats and the Redeemers are not going to abide by this. They're already digging out their their gray Confederate uniforms. They're already flying Confederate flags in South Carolina and in, in, in Louisiana. They are already talking about Tilden or blood. We're going to kill you if you don't, if, you, if there will be blood. We will start a second civil war over this if you don't do what we want done. Conklin comes up with, he's kind of the lead guy. They come up with this election commission. And what they decide is there will be five members of this commission from the Senate, five from the House, and five from the court. And the lesser party in each house will get two seats, while the majority party in each house will get three. So there'll be three Republican senators and two Democrat senators, three Democrat House members, and two Republican House members. By the way, Conklin doesn't become one of these, which is kind of an odd thing. But at any rate, then they'll go to the Supreme Court. Now, remember what I said earlier about the Supreme Court. At the time, there was one truly independent guy on the Supreme Court. His name is David Davis, and he is a jolly fellow who everybody, he, he, he just doesn't tell anybody what he's thinking about anything. In fact, one of his, uh, one of his biographers will say later, it's possible that he didn't even know who he supported, Tilden or Hayes. He was truly, remarkably, one of the true independents of our entire history. He was a man who did what, what we all think we want to do, which is take our time, consider all the angles, consider, consider all the rights and wrongs of something, and make a decision. He was the Associate Justice of the Supreme Court, and he was appointed to the commission. So now you've got seven Democrats, seven Republicans, and one independent. So guess what this guy really is, David Davis, is really the one guy in the entire country who's going to decide who becomes the next president of the United States. The Democrats in Illinois, his home state, think that this is too risky. This is not going to, this won't work. <laughs> what, if he, what if he doesn't, what if he doesn't do what we want him to do? And so they since they have a Senate seat open, elect him to be the senator from Illinois. So he, they, they figure he's already on the commission, so <laughs> we'll elect him as, as our new senator. But David Davis, who is, again, truly independent, he's a remarkable man for that, kind of sees through what they do, and he resigns his seat on the Supreme Court on March 4th, 1877, and takes his seat in the Senate the same day, and he declines, he resigns from the Electoral Commission before it even starts. So now your independent is out. Who's left? They got to have somebody, right? And so they look to the Supreme, and it has to be a Supreme Court justice. And so they look to this guy who they don't really know what's left, Joseph Philo Bradley. Joseph Philo Bradley will go down in history as one of the most hated, despised, 
detested men in all of our history. Don't you, you know that, right? You know that Joseph P. Bradley, social justice, is the most hated man in American history. Did you know that? You didn't know that? And why is he hated? Well, because he's not quite as independent as David Davis was going to be. He's, he's known to lean Republican. And so what you end up with is, dun, 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 eight Republicans and seven Democrats on the Electoral Commission, which is going to decide the status of all these disputed electoral votes. That means that the Democrats know that they are going to lose in the EC. They're going to lose in the Electoral Commission. They know, because Bradley is a Republican, they know that they're going to lose. And this causes even more tension and more problems and more anger as the commission gets ready to meet, as they're preparing to discuss these four specific states and these votes, that any one of which, of the, of the three southern states, any one of those three ends up in Tilden's camp, he wins. Hayes has to have every single one of them to win. And even if he gets all of them, he will win by one electoral college vote. But again... You know, it's the closest election in history. Anyway, point being that <laughs> into this fray steps our hero, Roscoe Conklin. <laughs> it's one of the greatest names in history. Roscoe Conklin knows that this is going to be a problem. And he knows that things are going to get really, really, really rough if they don't reach some kind of compromise outside of the bill that they passed, because, uh, spoiler alert, all four of the state's votes, Oregon, Florida, Louisiana, and South Carolina, are given to Hayes on the basis of an 8-7 to seven vote. And so Brad Brady is just pilloried because clearly he was just, you know, that guy. But Conklin is the guy who, who puts all of this together in the very smoke-filled back rooms of Washington, D.C. And he comes up, and they come up with an unwritten agreement that will pacify, I guess, all of these things that are going to happen. They end up with what will be known as the Compromise of 1877. Again, that's a misnomer because it really doesn't exist. There's nothing specifically outlining this. It was a tacit understanding reached in the back rooms between the people who were threatening violence and the people who wanted Hayes, Rutherford B. Hayes, to be president of the United States, or more specifically, did not want Samuel Tilden to be president of the United States. This compromise, number one, the Democrats in the House who were threatening to filibuster and threatening to, uh, in the Senate, the filibuster and the House was threatening this, uh, to to delay the inauguration, which is coming up very quickly in March. This is already February, late February, by the way. Things are getting a little haze. They agree that the Democrats will accept Rutherford B. Hayes as president, but there are some conditions for that. What are those conditions? Number one, Reconstruction will end. All troops will be removed from the southern states. All troops will be removed. Then... Mr. Hayes will appoint at least one Democrat to his cabinet. Can you imagine that today? Can you imagine that Gore, Gore, Bush, 
2000. If part of the part of the whole settlement had been, okay, we'll we'll let Mr. Bush be president, but he has to appoint some Democrat somewhere to the cabinet. How would that have been received? Again, this is a backroom deal by by Roscoe and his gang. The next condition is actually pretty interesting, but the construction of a second continental railroad. Remember that the first one had been built across the center of the country through Utah and Promontory Point and out to San Francisco. But there was no southern route. And the former Confederate states, the southern states, felt that this put them at at a competitive disadvantage when it came to transport of people and goods and the likes of that. The other thing to keep in mind is that telegraph lines tended to follow the railways. And so where there were no railroads, there generally weren't telegraph lines. So it it made communications difficult in the South. And so they wanted a second continental railroad, which again, is not a bad compromise. That's But it's going to be built at government expense. And so who's going to pay for that? Well, the federal government is. Last, next to last, they wanted legislation to industrialize the southern states. They wanted, le- they wanted laws to move industrial base type stuff to the south. Um, you could argue, and many have argued, that one of the reasons that the south lost the Civil War, the Confederacy lost, was because they didn't have an industrial base. And there's some validity to that argument. Well, in the process of this and some forward thinking that if we have to do this again, because remember... That was a very common thought in those days. The idea was we need some industrialization down here so that we can compete with the North, not just economically, but if need be, militarily. Perhaps, however, and this is the part where you wonder about things, the actual deal, the actual compromise of 1877, was to put Rutherford B. Hayes in the White House. And the southern states would then be allowed, they would have a right, their word, not mine, to deal with the freedmen with no interference. You can read that another way. The southern states would be allowed to deal with the black man however they wanted to, and there would be no interference with that from the north. They would be allowed to get a law, to get you know, to do whatever they wanted to do. They would be allowed to pass whatever laws they needed or wanted, they didn't really need them, to restore what they believed was the status quo. We talked last week with Carter Glass and others about what they believed that status quo was and how they hated the 15th Amendment and how they hated the idea that the, the black citizen could be equal to them and how they would never accept that. And in exchange for the White House, Conklin made his deal to put Rutherford B. Hayes in the White House and sell out everything that he actually believed in. There is, in fact, a very famous political cartoon of that era, after the compromise was announced, of... And I had it. I don't know what I did with it, but I had it with me, and I don't know where I put it. It's a it's a it's a political cartoon of the day in which Mephistopheles is portrayed as Conklin himself, and in the distance behind him, 
walking off or Rutherford B. Hayes and a, and a, and a voluptuous woman who is portraying the South. He got what he wanted. He got the White House. He got the Southern support for the White House. But it was a Faustian bargain. The conditions of that bargain were essentially soiling your soul, not just the soul of Roscoe Conklin or Rutherford B. Hayes, but of everything that they had actually believed in. Rutherford Hayes had been a general running for fighting in the Civil War, remember? He had been a general who was wounded in the service of his country. Conklin had been a man who vehemently was in favor of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments. In fact, he helped push those through. But to put Rutherford B. Hayes in the White House, they were willing to give all of that up. They were willing to sell all that out. The Republicans were willing to accept that the South was just going to go do its thing. They were just going to go be Southerners in order to keep Samuel Tilden out of the White House. Because they knew if Samuel Tilden got in the White House, the South would just go its own way. Reconstruction would end. The troops would be removed. (laughs) They would be allowed to pass whatever laws they want. They put Rutherford B. Hayes in the White House, and what did they gain? They gained the power to end the railroad strikes of 1877. They gained the power to do those things that you might think are are important but but in reality they gave up the most important thing which was the importance of protecting the rights of citizens not just that but they allowed evil and an evil idea to reappear you understand this evil ideas don't disappear they never go away they just change their form pre-war, the antebellum South, the Confederacy of slavery, where slaves were, you know, I mean, they were slaves, folks. Let's face it. You can always find an example, a a single confirmation bias data point to support your particular position about it. But the reality of it is slavery is evil. And it had to be destroyed at great cost. 300,000 Americans died to destroy slavery. Do you understand that? And that's been replaced because evil doesn't disappear. It changes its form. And in this case, it became the lost cause myth, the lost cause that, you know, the South was right. They were generally fighting for the right things. They just weren't, you know, strong enough. They just weren't able enough. The North cheated, whatever. The idea that somehow or another, the Civil War wasn't about slavery. It was about states' rights. Ask anyone who says that, what state right were they fighting for? Because the answer is, and only is, slavery. The right to own other people. That's it. That's all it was. The lost cause myth has led to a scenario where today in this country, there are far more Confederate memorials, more memorials to Confederate soldiers, leaders, whatever you want, statues, whatever, than there are to the men who fought against it. How is that even possible? Except that the lost cause myth has replace the reality of what really happened. Mephistopheles walked off with, with Hayes or his arm around the Southern woman to become president of the United States. And in the process of doing that, they sold out everything 
that we had. They sold out the whole thing. And the question you're left with is, was Mephistopheles right? In Goethe's book, Faust, Mephistopheles says to him near the end of the book, I'm not going to give, I don't have time to go through the whole story of Faust, but near the end of the book, and he's, in the end, you are exactly what you are. Put on a wig with a million curls, put on the highest heeled boots on your feet. Yet you remain in the end just what you are. Isn't that scary? You, you can sell your soul to the devil, but it doesn't change anything. You still who, you're still who you are. And yet, at the end of the day, the South was still the South, the North was still the North, the Union was still the Union. People like to point out to me all the time that they, they were racist in the North, too. Don't you know that? Yes, I know that. I know that they're a racist today. But at some point, you have to set aside your own biases and your own personal opinions, and you have to sacrifice for what you know is right. I have no doubt whatsoever that if I were to be actually be able to talk to my great-grandfather, I would find racist ideas and racist ideologies in his beliefs. He's from Arkansas, for God's sake. But I also know that he served the Union because he knew what was right and he knew what had to be done. And he had not met with Mephistopheles and promised his soul for what? And in the end, 300,000 men died. A million or more injured, wounded. To end slavery. To restore rights to men who deserted. Am I not a man? And a brother, says the famous cartoon. Am I not equal? Do we not believe that all men are created equal? The Confederacy did not believe that. They said over and over again, they did not believe that. They, they still say that. But the lost cause myth, the deal with Mephistopheles, the Faustian bargain that we made to put Rutherford B. Hayes in the White House, ended our willingness to support that. Within a generation of Rutherford B. Hayes being elected president of the United States, Jim Crow laws, which would literally reach their apex with the Virginia Convention and the new Virginia Constitution in 1902, within a generation, the Jim Crow laws were everywhere. And blacks were disenfranchised. Blacks were excluded from, from daily life in this country. All the rights that had been sacrificed for were done away with. To put Rutherford B. Hayes in the White House, Conklin, the abolitionist, was willing to sell his soul for the sole purpose of putting Rutherford B. Hayes in the White House. He gave up on everything he worked for in his life. Everything he stood for, he gave up because he's not Tilden. Evil, eyes don't, evil ideas don't disappear. They just change their form, just like the devil herself. In, in Bedazzled, Elizabeth Hurley changes forms and, and does so in the other stories as well. Was Mephistopheles right? Are we going to be just what we were? Are we always going to be that? Lincoln, in his first inaugural address, said, We are not enemies, but friends. We must not be enemies. Though passions may have been strained, 
It must not break our bonds of affection. The mystic cords of memory will swell when touched again, as surely they will be, by the better angels of our nature. We sold out. As a nation, we sold out. As a nation, we gave up. As a nation, we allowed Mephistopheles to take our soul. We allowed the devil, the lost cause myth. We allowed them to steal from us what we had so dearly paid for. And in the end, it's up to us to find the better angels of our nature. Even today, 144 years later, or will we always be what we were? That's really the only question. And as you watch what's happening in our streets today, as you watch what's happening in our nation today, as you listen to people say, we've never been more divided, ask yourself that question. Who was right? Mephistopheles or Lincoln? Because that's really the only question left from the 1876 election. We have the courage to stand up for what we know is true and what is right. And we sell our souls with a little bit of power today.